All right, it's February, and Plugged In is up and rolling in our Scottsdale studios. I'm your host, Al Dominic. Normally, I'm joined in studio by my man, Steve Williams. He's out on the road, so I found an incredible replacement, at least for today, and this is Anton Schutz. Anton, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure, Al. It's always a pleasure. So Anton is an avid sportsman, connoisseur of wine. He brought a few selections for us to talk about later on. And also someone who founded Menden Venture Partners, which is a venture capital investment firm focused on the intersection of financial institutions and uh, technology companies. So doing some pretty cool stuff on that regard. It's, it's really cool because it's a fund where the investors are banks and the investments are for banks. So it cl- completes this real virtuous circle of finding a great investment, making a bank better. A bank uses it. Revenue goes up. Company gets more valuable. I mean, it really... Is, is virtuous in terms of its function. And banks are also part of the due diligence. So when we find something interesting, we'll bring it to a bank and go, can you use this? What do you think? Yeah. And it's just really uh, critical that it's functional. Well, and one of the reasons we put Plugged In on the map was to help executives who are really thinking about what's coming up and how they can prepare themselves for maybe the next six to nine months. And Anton is someone who is so well-versed in the financial industry. He's been doing things for and with banks for a long time. His perspective is one that we want to draw on coming on the heels of Bank Directors Acquire Be Acquired Conference and Janie's Investor Event. So we were able to hang out at both of those. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the key takeaways. And the way we'll do that is by framing the conversation like we always do on Plugged In with some great references to some very cool tracks. So the first musical reference, if you will, that I'm going to use is Owner of a Lonely Heart, because you always live your life never thinking of the future. Yes. Right? That you is like, the you, name of the band. You, so. you, love the, you love this. Yes, indeed, it is the name of the band. And I was thinking about using this because Tom Michaud, the CEO of Keith Briette and Woods, opened Acquire Be Acquired, as he always does, talking about how his firm is starting to model a softer landing, not a soft landing. And so I'm just curious, as we think about this desire to hop into a quick recession, how do you think about this, given all you see across the industry? Well, I mean, you can't find the losses right now. I mean, you you talk to every bank and you go, what do you see? What are you afraid of? And they can't see the losses on the credit side. So I don't think that the credit, at least from a new perspective, other than a subprime space, which most of the banks have avoided, they've learned a lesson from 2007 and 8, you know, that's the only place you're seeing cracks. And I I think that employment being so strong has certainly created things. I think the onshoring has created a lot of of activity in the manufacturing space. And, you know, quite frankly, I think the end of the COVID benefits, potentially things like Medicaid can bring people back to the workforce. So I think that actually could reaccelerate the economy as people come back in, but hold down wage pressure. Well, we can certainly cross our fingers. Great strategy I like to use is just hoping for the best. <laughs> um, so if that's Yes's Owner of a Lonely Heart, let me pivot over to a 1992 classic by The Screaming Trees. And this is I Nearly Lost You. You're going to have to go onto our Spotify playlist to listen to this one. But I think I Nearly Lost You lines up with some of the M&A conversations that are kind of taking place right now. We're in a quiet period and this is an industry marked by consolidation. So if we you know, kind of pull back with we'll see you over the last 20 years, we went from 15,000 plus institutions to under five at the moment. I'm kind of curious when we talk M&A, 
nobody's really that optimistic for the near term, but how do you kind of make sense of what the year might look like? Well, I mean, you, you have a sort of a latent desire to have M&A for lots of reasons, right? You have, you know, people have underinvested in technology. You have people who don't have the right deposit structure. You have people who don't have the right plan, period. And, and by the way, you always have CEOs that sort of age out and get to a point where, all right, who's my successor? Let me move on and find a partner. And then that need to, to spend and cut costs. I mean, if you want to invest in technology, sometimes it's better to go partner with somebody, cut costs, and use those savings to invest. So lots of drivers here, but I think that you've got a couple things that are against it right now. Part of it is the, what are the price of the securities, right? That AOCI is, is a really big monster under the bed and it's a monster. So marking that portfolio and taking on that interest rate risk is it's one thing. Taking on another bank's credit risk is another. And we talked about credit. Nobody sees it yet, but everybody's afraid of somebody else's credit. So again, that's a detriment to M&A. On the larger bank side, I think the regulators really are taking their cue from Washington, D.C., and they're really slow-rolling deals, and, and you know, people are afraid that you know, it really takes a long time to complete a deal. So when you announce a deal, you know, your workforce sits there and waits, and there's a lot of disruption. You know, it'd be nice to know with some certainty a deal will get approved or a certain time frame it gets approved. And I think smaller deals have a much better chance of closing on a quicker basis. And again, it always does depend on the regulator, but clearly that's a tough environment. I do think in the back half of the year, and perhaps later, when there's a little more clarity on what interest rate policies are, what credit quality is looking like, that you know, M&A will pick up. I mean, you're sitting there basically bottlenecking M&A that was going 4 to 6% a year over the last few years and freezing it cold. And I, I think that you know, there's definitely that latent desire to do it. You know, growth through acquisition was the primary catalyst for many institutions. You know, they're going to find other opportunities to pursue size and scale. You, know, you talk about regulatory concerns, compliance challenges. I mean, these are familiar to most, all listeners. Um, when it comes to M&A, it strikes me a lot of people are parroting the whole adage, banks aren't bought, they're actually sold. I, I wish I had a dollar for each time I heard that this week. I'd I, be said, a, I said it earlier today. I'd be a rich man because it seems to be the one of the lines of the week. So let's think about growth. And if it's not going to be through a bank on bank deal, it's probably going to be looking at some organic, you know, expansion opportunities, which is where men and venture partners comes into play. So if we roll back the clock and go to our good friend, Patty B, as in Pat Benatar. Oh, I, you know, knew what you meant. You know, love really is a battlefield. <laughs> and for the last few years, fintechs and banks have been trying to, you know, dance with each other in some kind of creative ways. Last year with the, you know, just massive pullback in fintech valuations, you know, there was almost indiscriminate carnage across the industry. I think there's an opportunity for banks and fintechs to look at each other a little bit differently and realize, you know, love doesn't have to be that battlefield. It might actually be a really healthy thing. Talk a little bit about the types of tech companies that you get excited about when you think about their potential to help expand a bank's franchise value. Sure. And I'm actually going to step back and go... The word fintech, it's come to represent companies that originate loans and fund in the wholesale market, right? It just, you know, you think about companies like Afterpay or Affirm, um, Upstart, SoFi, and, and really, you know, SoFi got a bank charter. They're one of the few, but from a funding perspective, that word fintech kind of means not a bank and not having funding advantages. Also, that their credit has a better mousetrap. And, you know, their data is vast, but it's still limited. It's not typically gathered during some stress periods. 
And we're seeing some real problems right now in that space. So the valuations are lower for a reason. The funding doesn't exist as well. And, and some of those companies I just mentioned may very well end up as divisions of much bigger banks that, does, that do have the ability to diversify that type of business as well as to fund it. So in terms of what we looked at, we've not gone for the shiny object. We've not gone for the, you know, build a better mousetrap in, in lending from a credit perspective to mass market consumers. But what we have done is gone for things that make companies operationally better. We've invested in things like wealth technology. We've invested in, in things that allow consumers to communicate with their bankers, both through video, AI, choose who they speak with, actually get relationship managers online. Um, there have been some really neat cost-saving things. Fraud prevention, certainly very, very important. Fraud is, is really the bad actors have created a lot of trouble. Um, big data. I mean, big data is a big catchphrase, but there's so many applications in the banking industry, both offensive and defensive. So, you know, there is a wealth of, of opportunity out there for banks to improve efficiency and improve their, their battle plans and going forward. Well, you're talking catchphrases and it lets me pivot to the talking heads. And one of my favorite songs, which is This Must Be the Place, because for so many catchphrases in the tech world, it starts with digital and it ends with transformation. And at least here at Cornerstone, we see a lot of initiatives that are really more digital in nature than they are truly transformative. That was one of the big takeaways from Acquire Be Acquired. Um, help me understand you know, this chat GPT moment that we're in where AI and some of the like, more advanced technologies pique your interest and should at least excite the transformative you know, nature of, of bankers? Well, as long as we're not burning down the house, <laughs> um, it's really important for the banks to understand that this AI is real in many ways. There's still a lot of human interaction that's going to need to happen. It's still in its early stages. I do think efficiency ratios are going to come down. I think, you know, a number of employees at banks are going to come down because a lot of the, the the guts of a bank from an operational perspective are driven by technology. And a lot of those processes are driven by technology and people together. If AI takes the place of people, it'll certainly help improve efficiency ratios. Yeah, I think on the people front, that's one of those areas for 2023 that I get excited about. When I think of certain efficiencies that can be created, that allows you to reduce certain expenses and redirect them in different directions. If you have a team that's got an appetite for change, that has got the leadership support to give cover to their growth, all of a sudden you're going to build some redundancies into your organization that may not have existed a few years ago. I think that's where technologies can be kind of a little catalyst for the type of change that you're looking for, as long as you don't forget that the technology is just a tool and a means to an end. So, Yeah, I mean, it's we've seen things like branch-based technology, right? We, we've seen the ITMs, we've seen all sorts of things that make it easier for a customer in a branch to do things. But, you know, in the regulatory environment we're in, shutting a branch is pretty difficult. So what do you do with the employees in the branch who have to be in the branch and are not busy? And there are technological tools to actually have them be available to their customers or other customers through, you know, tools like Agent IQ where they can literally plug in, be the relationship manager, help solve the problem for people across the whole system. So I think there's a way to repurpose the employees in that branch 
to help the entire organization. Yeah, and I think this ties into the whole concept of earnings, efficiency, and agility, and how all three really are interdependent on each other. And so if you can help your team become a little bit smarter about where they're using their time, what they're focused on in terms of potential outcomes, like that's a real win. Exactly. So, you know, we've been a few places in the last few weeks. Uh, We've had a chance to, you know, talk to some really cool folks. I'm going to use Fleetwood Mac because everyone loves Fleetwood Mac and really the great song everywhere as a way to bring it into the takeaways, if you will, from the last week. And, you know, I was thinking it's deposits, deposits, deposits. I'm sure you're going to bang the table and say the same thing. But were there any themes or trends that you took away from, you know, either the Janney event or the Acquire Be Acquired conference that if you weren't out in the desert, you probably need to pay attention to? Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I talked about it earlier, credit quality, right? You're just looking for the trouble. You're looking for the mistake. And I think the fact that the non-bank lenders have such a share of lending, I think Thomas Show put it very well from KBW in terms of the slides he put out. There's such a market share of unregulated. I think the law of un- unintended consequences is real here. I think the things like Dodd-Frank, things like the actions regulars have driven a lot of lending outside the banking space. And there's really some dangerous practices out there. And, and if we do get into a deeper recession, it's not the banks who are doing it. It's not the products that were around 2007, eight. It's not the lending practices. So the banks, again, are scratching their heads going, where are the lending problems? They're not necessarily inside the banking industry. However, some of those lenders who've been you know, doing dangerous things do borrow money from banks. And, and so there is some systemic you know, potential risk, particularly to the bigger banks that lend to some of those players. Yeah. I mean, I was struck by how many people were really focusing their comments on the small to mid-sized business sector. You know, when in, in the past we've talked technology it's been more consumer and retail oriented. This year, there seemed to be a very clear drive to say, we have a segment that we know well. And whether it's through the triple P rollout from a few years ago, where we started to earn trust to where we are today, we have opportunities to serve in a way that is going to be memorable, repeatable, and profitable, which well, is not a bad thing for yeah, a capitalistic well, society like ours. Profits are, profits are you know what drives a lot of these management teams. And and if you really think about it, the customers really appreciated what banks did in times of crisis, right? They were there for their customers. They worked midnight shifts getting triple P loans approved. Um, I, I think the service quality of the smaller banks is, is really critical to their success. And that exists today. The bigger banks are, are, are working on a lot of bigger type situations. And I will tell you, the regulators have their eyes on the big banks. They're going to have to raise more capital. They're going to be under a lot of scrutiny. We'll see about the CFPB. Uh, we'll see what the Supreme Court does, but you know clearly they went after the credit card companies this week, and we'll we'll see how that uh, continues to move down the pike. Well, the old Chinese proverb "May you live in interesting times" continues to apply to our industry. So I'm going to take us home with a little fog hat and slow ride, because if you're able to watch a snippet of this, Anton is a incredible wine collector and knows that I'm something of a cork dork myself. So he's got some bottles here. I just want him to describe. This one with an American flag, this is from Sherwin Family Vineyards. And I think anyone should hear this because it's a great story about a company that really cares about the country. Yeah, I mean, they, they really do care about the country. And, and they first had that bottle made right after the aftermath of 9-11 for Windows of the World. Um, they had fundraisers for their families of their employees that lost their lives. And they uh, actually had the top bottle at their auction. Um, and they said, wow, we, we, we've on to something. So... 
they they made a bunch of these bottles for auction and donated them to lots of charities trying to help people. And finally, they decided, well, wait a second. These are pretty popular bottles. Maybe we ought to think about actually selling some of these bottles. And, you know, their attorney said, there's no way you're going to get permission to put an American flag on a bottle. You are not allowed legally by law to put an American flag on containers of alcohol of any sort. So, you know, they called their trade association and said, can you please go to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and, and get us an approval? And, and their representative said, no, it's not. They're never going to approve this. And they said, listen, we pay you a lot of money. Please go do it. And so they walked across the street. And, and clearly, the, the person over there had to be in a patriotic mood and, and stamped the application and approved it. So that is uh, one of the neatest bottles. And by the way, the wine in there is really terrific. They're on top of Spring Mountain. Um, they had a tragedy themselves where uh, during some of the California fires, they, their whole, whole bottling room and everything burnt to the ground. And um, so they've reconstructed it. They've come back. And uh, yeah, they make some great wine. Well, there's some good juice sitting right here. And, you know, we're going to juice it up here on Plugged In whenever we can with some unexpected comments like this. So let me just send my thanks to everyone who's listening in, watching, to Anton for joining us. This wine is tempting me. So, again, Cornerstone appreciates getting plugged in whenever, wherever we can. I'm Al Dominic. We'll catch up with you again as soon as we possibly can. Thanks. Thanks.